Uh, this is Mark Steger, the Demogorgon from Stranger Things, and you are listening to the Station of Decapitation without your hit. Without your head, I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Robert Krasowski, the writer and director of The Man Who Killed Hitler, and then The Bigfoot Butch. It's uh, great to have you here. Nice to be here. Thank you very much, Neil. Yeah. And not just because you're here. It was honestly my favorite uh, movie at Fright Fest. Uh, th- well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're very welcome. So, which came first? Like, because it kind of sounds like a title you would just think of and then, like, make a movie around? Or did you have the movie idea and then, like, the perfect title for it? Uh, I wrote the first ten pages, uh, almost like a James Bond opening, uh, where those ten pages ended with the hero killing Hitler. And I realized there was nowhere to go from there and started thinking about Hitler as a monster and then started thinking, well, what monster could he face next? And... I thought it would be interesting if it were Bigfoot. And then uh, in doing that, I felt like, wouldn't it be neat if we tried to take that seriously and, and, and approached it as if these things could have actually happened and how would they fit our timeline in a way that, that living in 2018, we'd, we'd have some belief that this could have happened. So it was kind of those first 10 pages spawned all the ideas. And, and when I finished writing that night, I put the, the title on it, the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot. So that was, that was there right from the beginning, but I hadn't figured out how I was going to tie all these elements together yet. Mm-hmm. And when you say that about like uh, in a realistic way, cause right away when I heard the title, I was like, this is a movie I want to see, but it's definitely totally different than the movie I expected, but, sure. but uh, I loved it. So uh, do you think the title um, it's in some ways, I think it could, uh, it'll track people. And, but I think some people it might put off the actual movie cause they were expecting something different. And some people who would really like the movie might not watch it because of the title. <laughs> <laughs> I think no matter what we did, I, I put the title there because I felt like it, it said everything that it needed to say to let the mm-hmm. audience make a decision as to whether they'd want to watch it or not. And I felt like it was just as tricky to uh, give it a simpler title and then have the audience back into all this weirdness. So I felt Mm -hmm. like I just put it out there um, and let people decide whether that was something they wanted to see or not. And then I trusted the audience to um, adjust their expectations as the movie progresses and and allow the movie to be the thing that it is. So um, there was no no attempt to trick anybody or to give people something different than what they what they what they wanted i i had hoped that we were delivering on what they wanted from that title and then and then giving them a whole lot more that was the 
that was the goal. That was the attempt we were that we were making. Mm-hmm. I agree with that because I did go in thinking it was going to be a certain kind of movie, kind of over the top, silly movie. But I was uh, surprised in a good way because I thought it was like a beautiful movie. I thought it was uh, really well made and uh, just uh, much better than I expected it to be. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. I know that the yeah, team yeah. be happy to hear that as well. They, you know, this this entire group of people worked really hard on this, and we all, when the screenplay was done, it was really just a group of people gathering around that screenplay, trying to defend it and make that thing. And it's very rare that I, you know. It, a filmmaker gets to make the movie that they set out to make. And Patrick Ewald at Epic Pictures, he, he let us make the exact movie that was on the page. And then when Sam Elliott came on board, it was very much his mission to make that movie. That was actually one of our earliest discussions was not changing the script. He, he really wanted it mm-hmm. to be that. And so that helped me, um, you know, he kind of became the last line of defense on letting the movie be what it is. Mm-hmm. How did he even come aboard? Was did you approach him? Was did you kind of have him in mind when you're writing it? Um, you know, it's funny. I I had done about 20 conceptual designs, full color, and I I had done uh, hundreds of storyboards, and the drawings look exactly like Sam Elliott. I'll, I'll send you a couple drawings so that you All can right. put them on oh, your sweet. or whatever, so people can see what I'm talking about. But um, I mean, it, it, I. For whatever reason, cosmically, whatever, I was drawing Sam Elliott. It looks exactly like him. And when he uh, was one of the names that was mentioned, we, we had a few other people in mind that we thought would also be good. But Sam just really seemed to embody what we were trying to do. Um, and, and in talking with John Sales, our executive producer, and one of the, the, the key people that got this movie put together, um, you know, he, he got really excited about Sam as well. Um, and, and, and that really led us to, uh, go through our casting director, Kelly Roy, reaching out to Sam's reps, uh, Sam's representatives, they, they loved the script. And then Sam called me right around Thanksgiving of 2016 and wanted to talk about the movie. And and our discussion was really just Sam saying, I want to make this. I believe in the message of this movie. It reminded him of his father. Uh, it, it spoke to a decency that I think he wanted to, uh, you know, shine a spotlight on. And mm-hmm. and I think it was different for him. I think he saw it as an interesting challenge. At, you know, at the time he was 72, um, and it was his birthday when we were on set. It was mine as well. So, you know, he became uh, uh, 73 when we were shooting, and it was something that I think he hadn't said before in his career, whatever this movie's trying to say, I think it was saying it in a different way. So I think it was a, a, a fun challenge for him and, and also something that was stretching his legs because it was something he hadn't done anything like before. So once he came on board, that became just a big responsibility to deliver on the promise that, that we had all set out to, to make. Mm-hmm. Did um, So once he's on board, does, is what you wrote like pretty much he plays how you wrote the character? Does Sam Elliott like change the character at all? No, the script was was really defended across the board by everybody. Ron Livingston, Sam Elliott, uh, Caitlin Fitzgerald, Aiden Turner, uh, Larry Miller. Nobody ever asked me, can I change this line? Can I can I alter mm-hmm. this? Can I can I make this different? Um, for the most part, I tried 
to write the thing very conversationally so it would sound like the way people really talk. So Sam is very much the character as it was on the page, but what Sam brought to the, to the movie was an extreme sense of realism. He really wanted this to feel like it could happen and that this character existed. Um, and Sam's very method in his approach. If, he, if he's a character that has a handkerchief, he's going to want that handkerchief in his pocket, whether you see it or not. And he'll, mm-hmm. he'll pause and, and make somebody go find that handkerchief if he needs it, just because he needs that for the character. He, he really tries to embody the person that he's playing. And mm-hmm. so um, Sam's great contribution to the movie, besides the just beautiful performance, is he makes the whole movie feel more real because he was expecting the crew to, to bring that level of realism in, in everything that they were doing. So, so we all stepped up to that. Um, and, and I think when Sam and I, in our conversations, the, the, the thing that I was also very interested in was kind of a magical realism with the fantasy elements and the monsters and some of the, um, the, the, almost a luck element of the movie or the, the, the fact mm-hmm. that this guy, anything he says mm-hmm. he can do, he's able to do. And that's kind of like um, Bernard Malamud's The Natural, um, which was made into a movie with Robert Redford, where this, this character is, is almost uh, uh, mythic and, and gifted in some way that goes beyond normal humans. And I just wanted mm-hmm. to touch on that a little bit and, and kind of have flashes of that throughout the movie. And, and that was something that was very different for Sam. I don't think he's played a character that has those kind of fantasy elements. So I was balancing the fantastic side and Sam was balancing the, the realistic side. And I think together that makes for a really r- unique tone. I, I haven't, I haven't seen something quite like that. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's a testament to, to Sam's dedication to something that he hadn't, hadn't really explored before and just being totally game to try it. Mm-hmm. I like the, the, you know, the tagline American uh, myth, cause it does seem kind of like a, like a fable or something. And I think like his character really represents uh, for me watching anyway, like uh, what America is, you know, supposed to be about like he sacrifices, you know, pretty much uh, his life to, uh, to protect everybody and uh, for the good of, of the world. Yeah. I was trying to, in, you know, in writing the thing, I know it's a tall, tall order, but I was trying to write an American mythic, not unlike Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow or Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I wanted Calvin Barr to kind of feel like a new age version of some of these mythic American characters. And I know that, uh, you know, Christmas Carol is not an American character, but, you know, that was that was very much... I was trying to create a, an I- iconic character that felt like a story that could have been around for a long time and, and, and could be passed down and could almost be interpreted like a, as you, as you might, a parable. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was, that was kind of part of the exercise of writing the script. And then in casting Sam, you, you get so much of that, um, that, that spirit, that comes with him because that's very much the type of person Sam is. And that's, that's kind of the, that's the kind of filmmaking icon that he is. Um, so he just brings that to the movie. So, I, I mean, I don't know who else would have, would have quite had that, um, that 
aura about him, I guess you would say. And then, and then also there's a big inspiration from Norman Rockwell and, and Sam kind of looks like he fell out of a Norman Rockwell painting. And so do a lot of the other yeah. characters in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think like, if I would tell someone, like, I think the movie's patriotic, they might think it's like this gung ho kind of thing, but it's not. And also like when you said about decency, if you could take like, well, some of the things currently today, uh, you know, are maybe cruel and not decent. And you, so it's not like a movie that knocks America either. It's kind of a, it's a, it doesn't go one way or the other. I think it, you know, it's an American movie about uh, what America, you know, should be about. It's uh, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I studied journalism at UMass before I got pulled away into a career ultimately in film. Um, and so from a, you know, wanting to pursue a career in journalism, I, I wanted to tell stories from the middle and, and come mm-hmm. at them honestly, um, almost from a documentary perspective. And I know that that sounds completely bizarre to try to apply that theory to this film, but I was trying really hard to tell an American story that spoke from the middle where it's not so much just an American movie, it's a human movie. And, and that mm-hmm. decency isn't just a decency that's indicative of Americans. It's, it, it's what we should all be looking up to. And I was just trying to create a character that would share a lot of the frailties and, and fears that we all have, but also be this, this extremely able, courageous hero. And, and I thought that that might be somebody to look up to. So it certainly has all the elements of, of what I think Americans aspire to be as a people and as a country, but it wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't coming at it from a perspective of, uh, of um, trying to make a, a patriotic um, mm-hmm. fable. I was just trying to, to tell a story from, from the perspective of a soldier who had, who had exchanged a lot in the service of others. And I think there's a lot of soldiers that are doing that right now. I think there are a lot of nurses doing that. I think there are teachers doing that. I think there are volunteers. Um, in, 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 and, and those are the people that I don't know if they're forgotten, but maybe we don't think about them as much as we should because they're paying for a lot of the freedoms that we maybe take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was something I was trying to shine a light on with, with this story. Yeah. And some you don't see a lot today because we really live in like the age of the anti-hero. And it's uh, it's sure. nice to see like an actual hero and it not to feel like it's it's like dated, even though, you know, it is about older days. But, you know, it doesn't seem like it's out of place. Right. And I mean, I love movies like Unforgiven, which are just chock full of antiheroes. And I think that that has sure. every bit as much to say about who who we are as a people and who we are specifically as Americans, because we have this this rich and complicated history. And um, so there's a place for for that type of hero or or anti-hero. But in this film, it was much more drawing from the Norman Rockwell idea of what a hero looks like and and that nobility and that decency. Um, I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, and I think that that just kind of that imagery winds up in your bones because as you're walking around, you see those paintings almost come to life um, in each season. And I wanted to try to reflect that old fashioned decency and uh, heroism uh, in this in this movie. So that was certainly a, an attempt that uh, the costume designers, Carol Cutshaw and Michael Bevins and the production designer, uh, Brett Hatcher, um, we were all kind of in a unified front on that on that attempt. 
I too grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. Did you film it all in Massachusetts? Uh, the the secret is that every single shot in that movie takes place about ten minutes from my front door in Western Massachusetts. <laughs> so it, it takes place all over the world. It takes place in Poland and Germany and Canada and small town Massachusetts. And really, it's all just it's all just right here in Western Mass. The only the only time we ever drove about an hour and a half was to head to Lennox in the Berkshires for Hitler's castle. Um, and Hitler's castle was the house, um, the boys school from cider house rules. <laughs> That's pretty wild. So, so when you see Hitler's castle, it's the, it's the house from cider house rules. They shot the back of the building, which looks completely mm-hmm. different. And we shot the front of the building, which looks more like a giant kind of Downton Abbey mansion or a castle of some sort. So they look different on each side, but when you see the, interiors you'll see some you'll you'll see some of that mm-hmm. so why is it the bigfoot and not just bigfoot uh it's just because he's the last one and i thought that okay. if you're reading that title it was just an opportunity if i put the the in there it, it conveyed a little extra story so um mm-hmm. i was trying to almost give a summary of the story again so that the audience knew what they were getting into so if i put the the in there it would let you know that there's just this one it's the bigfoot and that would add a little more mystery to well why is it the bigfoot is it really the last one is this guy gonna go make this species extinct um and so yeah it was just to add a little more mystery and to point to the fact that the thing that he's killing is incredibly special there's there's just this one last being that he's going after mm-hmm. uh, what is your version of, of the bigfoot based on or is it just out of your mind uh, Bernie Wrightson's Frankenstein illustrations. Oh, very nice. Um, John Gardner's Grendel, uh, which is a, a great novel that tells the story of Beowulf from the perspective of the monster. And um, he has a very modern way of speaking. And he's lonely and he's tortured and he's miserable. And so I, I John Sales and I in discussing this film, he had me do almost like a scientific write-up of, of, of how the Bigfoot works where he hides his scat, uh, what he eats, um, where he lives, how he migrates. And so all of that is in my head as I'm making the movie, though in the movie, um, you know, there's, there's only just little tiny flashes of bar explaining where it came from. But to, to my mind, it has this whole other 200-year history, um, mm-hmm. you know, skirting up and down America and up into Canada and back and forth for the last 200 years. So it's this ancient lonely thing that has no people and is essentially good um but just happens to be carrying this plague and Mm -hmm. and it could it could wipe everybody out and i think that hitler in world war War ii he started uh a plague but it was a plague of an idea and so these Mm -hmm. two monsters are doing the very much the same thing but but in different ways in 1942 and 1987 Mm mm-hmm and uh, uh, Mark Steger plays uh, the Bigfoot, who I've had on the show. Who also, uh, for people who don't know, he played the uh, the Demogorgon in um, Stranger Things. So, uh, how did he how did he get involved? And uh, did you think he did a good job as the Bigfoot? Yeah, I mean, Mark is a, a brilliant creature performer uh, and, a, and a great actor. And Mark and I just wanted to make the 
the Bigfoot feel human. He's, he's human size. He's not seven feet tall. We had actors that we easily could have gotten. I mean, it, it, the suits, you know, stretches. So it, had we designed it for a bigger person, we could have gone after a muscular seven foot person. Um, you know, th- there was a discussion of, of making uh, the Bigfoot much leaner, much leaner and more emaciated and, and showing its sickness and, and giving it these kind of uh, golem like eyes um, and just going for a more unusual approach for the Bigfoot and making it more human so that when Bar confronts it, it's more tragic. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Mark did a beautiful job. There was an extremely limited time to shoot the Bigfoot stuff. We, you know, we had 25 days to shoot the entire movie um, and so that only left us a little bit of time to do the Bigfoot fight, which we wanted to make really big and fun and almost the Sam Raimi uh, reprieve at the three-fourths mark of the movie. Just tonally, the movie really changes for a moment. I thought that that would give the audience some fun and catharsis before we kind of head back to the more cerebral, thoughtful ending of the movie. Um and so I think Mark did a brilliant job. And I think that on the, the very short amount of time that we had to do it, uh, Spectral Motion, who did Hellboy and a lot of other creature features, um, delivered a really uh, different Bigfoot that was, you know, it was always meant to kind of remind you in some way of a 2001 ape. Um, okay. I can see that now. Primal man. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that was that was kind of the idea. We we just didn't want to do the, the big lumbering obvious Bigfoot. And and we also mm-hmm. knew that no matter what Bigfoot we did, it didn't matter. There could be there could be ten different versions. There would mm-hmm. be a certain amount of people to go, that's not what Bigfoot looks like. That's you know, that's not <laughs> the Bigfoot I want. But nobody mm-hmm. knows what he looks like, so we felt like we could take a you know, a, a big liberty there and, and make it a little more tragic. So that was the mm-hmm. that was the theory behind it. Yeah. And something I like about the movie is uh, Sam Elliott's character, uh, Calvin. Um, well, both uh, Calvins. Uh, like, killing isn't fun uh, at all for him. You know, even if it's yeah. the most evil man that we've had in, in recent times or, you know, this creature that uh, could wipe out humanity, he still doesn't get any, you know, there's no pleasure in killing either of them. Yeah, yeah. I I just don't, you know outside of somebody being a sociopath, I don't care who you are. I just don't think that killing comes naturally to human beings. And it's certainly something that um, weighs on you and and stays with you forever. So I I, I felt like in killing Hitler, that's the prime example that every um, guy I've ever met says, you know, I'd have no problem killing Hitler. You know, of course I would. And, and And that's something that I would do easily. And I just, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that anybody could just do that happily. Uh, even the, a man that, that evil, even a man that, that you might save a million lives doing it. I still think that psychically that's going to take a toll. Um, and so I wanted a hero that reflected that, that he's doing it because he knows it's the right thing and it's, it's what he has to do. Um, but it takes a toll on him. And then all the more so it has no effect on history because these uh, I don't want to ruin the movie too bad, but essentially Mm -hmm. him doing that doesn't alter history as we know it. Um, and Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that. And so there's no, there was never any personal glory in it, but there was no reward in it for the world either. Nobody was saved because of it. So, um, 
you know, there's a scene where, where Barr is walking past uh, um, a bunch of uh, prisoners being marched um, onto boxcars um, from many di- different faiths. And there's, uh, you know, people that, that uh, Hitler persecuted um, from all walks of life being marched onto these cattle cars. And um, that's a moment where Barr might have been able to do something that had an impact. There, there weren't that many guards there. He was incredibly able. He was in disguise. And so I think that these are the things that are really torturing him is that he had opportunities to do something that had an impact, but he followed his mission through to the end. And he did this incredible thing that, that, that had no historical value. And uh, like I said, not to, to, to uh, spoil the movie, but there's a really powerful uh, speech that he gives, which uh, really, when I was watching it, kind of uh, I got teary-eyed. I thought it was a uh, uh, great performance and uh, re- very well written. So, you know, together is very powerful uh, part of the movie. Thanks. Yeah, that was, you know, sitting there watching that being uh, photographed, and, you know, I'm huddled up in a corner. Uh, it, that it, Bar's house is my house. So when I'm sitting in a corner of my house watching Sam do this and, you know, with Ron Livingston there and Rizwan Manji, and they're just bringing so much seriousness and so much honesty to something that I think could have been preposterous. But it's these ideas of uh, what Barr is talking about, the, the spread of Nazism and the, the spread of an idea and him, you know, just killing a man and that having no, no impact Sam speaks it so truthfully and so powerfully that in this really bizarre movie that, like you said, it was starting to actually, you know, move you. I don't think this movie, I don't, I don't, I don't think that people feel like a movie like this has any right to, to go to these places. And there, there are people that will never forgive me for not making it the exploitation movie that maybe they want it. But if you open yourself up to it, I think that, Sam's doing some really beautiful stuff and there's some things to be said here that are worth saying. And I think that you can use a story like this as a parable. And if people will accept it on, on those terms, I think that there's, there's something to be discovered here. But if, if somebody doesn't want to open themselves up to that, and that's just not what they're on board for, I, I, you know, I can't blame them for that. I understand that, that that's not the movie they're looking for. Mm-hmm. But I always think that's what, um, a lot of great uh, science fiction and uh, and genre movies, ha- or even stories, have always been, you know, throughout history or parables for, for uh, social commentary or, or you know whatever it is you're trying to say. Sure. Yeah. I mean, John Sayles, when we when we first started conceptualizing the you know how this movie would get made and and how we would do it on a budget and how we would give it some sense of scale and scope, um, he he said that. You know, Kurt Vonnegut and uh, many of the great uh, science fiction writers and fantasy writers, I I think he was specifically thinking of Slaughterhouse-Five, which jumps back and Mm -hmm. forth in time between uh, the war and his his home life. And there's this whole element of Slaughterhouse-Five that there's an alien visitation that that takes this man away and enlightens him, but also makes him a completely strange person on Earth. Um, and, And John felt that these stories could be like a Trojan horse where you can, you can give the audience all the, the fantasy that they're looking for, but also use it as a, as a um, vessel for the bigger ideas of who we are and where we're going. So um, 
you know, that this movie was made very much in that spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about Aiden as the young uh, Sam Elliott character, the young Calvin? Uh, how did he? How did you find him for the movie? Uh, I was looking really hard for for someone that felt like they could capture the energy of, of of a young Sam Elliott, and that's a really tall order. Sam is a very singular actor. There's no other actors like Sam. That's why Sam is so special. So to try to find a younger counterpart for him was really difficult, and I was just trying to watch everything I could, all the television shows I could. I, I, you know, Sam came on board around uh, November of 2016, and we didn't shoot until um, uh, August of 2017. So I had months to, to find somebody. And our casting director, Kelly Roy, was searching. And one of the first people that, that really stuck with me was Aiden. I was watching Paul Dark, and he has this uh, unpretentious cool, and he has this swagger. He's charming. He's an you know, excellent actor. Um, and I just, every now and again, I see a little flash. I wasn't looking for somebody to perfectly mirror Sam. I was just looking for somebody to feel spiritually connected to him somehow. Because I, I, I knew that it was an impossible task to get somebody who is Sam as a younger man. That's just not going to happen. You, you can't replicate that voice. You can't. And, and if you try, it'll feel like a parody. So we just avoided that mm-hmm. altogether and looked for an actor that would that would kind of have the spirit of what a younger Calvin Barr would be like, and also have you know match a certain amount of the energy of Sam Elliott himself. And so Aiden was kind of the only actor that I that I came across that I said I think this guy has all of those things, and yet he'll also feel completely. Um, sovereign in his own performance as this character um so it was really just a, a you know there's no makeup being used there's no trick to try to tie them together so your brain goes oh that you know that that's sam Elliott. it's just the only makeup aiden is using is his acting and that's that's pretty sophisticated and subtle stuff that he's doing and if they feel connected at all it's, it's really just these little glimmers that um that that they each kind of discussed and then gently brought into their characters. So it's not it's not a huge massive connection between the two. It's much more subtle than that. And I much prefer that mm-hmm. because I think if somebody was doing an impersonation, it would have annoyed people. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. How about the the Larry Miller character as, as his brother? Um, like, kind of my interpretation of that is he's kind of like uh, 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 kind of shows what what. Um, what people are fighting for, like uh, the soldiers are fighting for. He's like the guy that's back home and lives his life. And he's like a, a typical citizen. I don't know if that's exactly. what you're going for, but that's how I feel. Yeah. You hit the nail right on the head. Larry represents um, everything that, that bar goes off to defend and protect and, and give people that kind of life, a life of uh, general comfort and happiness and family and connection and and that's what his brother has and i think bar though he's not necessarily a jealous person and he certainly isn't envious if there's anything that bar looks up to i think he looks up to the life that his brother has and it makes him incredibly sad that that's something that he'll never know and i think in the end of the movie again i'm trying really hard not to ruin too much but i think at the end that bar's attempt at connecting with that kind of american life um in what little, small, and subtle ways he he reaches out and tries to have a connection. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I, that, that's exactly what Ed, again, if it were, a, if this is a um, metaphor or a parable or whatever this movie is, he, he represents that aspect of life. Mm-hmm. It's a really uh, kind of bizarre, like uh, a scene that totally works in the movie, though. It's you know kind of it's kind of adds a little supernatural element with the Russian character, and uh, I just wonder, like uh, you know, where did that come from? Was there uh, anything that inspired that with the uh, shaving there's, uh, there's no, scene? Yeah, there's no there's no um, Romanian superstition that I know of that connects to that. It was it was something that kind of it's one of those scenes that kind of writes itself. You, I, I put the two characters in a tent together, and I thought that this Russian character was really interesting, I, and, and I wanted to say something about U.S.-Russia relations. I mean, each person in that tent represents their country. So Barr represents America in World War II, and, Russia, and, and the Russian represents Russia in World War II. And there's this kind of uneasy alliance that's happening, and also... Um, this kind of dance of can we trust each other and mm-hmm. you're going to have to play by my rules for me to trust you and you're going to have to play by my rules for me to trust you and then they both kind of enter this agreement and then go forth on a mission together and then there's kind of this tease at the end of the Russian saying um, you know you might think you knew me which again is, is, is hinting at our complex relationship with Russia over the next you know 50 years or so so mm-hmm. again, it's it's being used as a as a, a again like a parable. So um, the scene in the tent just evolved as I was writing it. And I think I wrote it in one in one shot. The whole scene, I think I wrote in about a day and a half, and I never really went back and changed it. It just it just felt very organic. And then the idea of bringing the straight razor into it mm-hmm. um, through this kind of superstitious rite that he does, which is all about being cursed and um, and, uh, I, I think that's something that Barr doesn't believe in at all. And it's something that the Russian totally believes in. And as Barr gets older, I'm sure that that's something he thinks about is this notion of, of being cursed. And I don't think that he even sees it as a superstitious thing. I think Barr just kind of feels cursed in general. Mm-hmm. And there are certain elements in the movie, the stone in his shoe and the painting on his wall, and the box under his bed that all have this kind of magical realism about them that all mean something that as the movie progresses, they kind of reveal themselves. And, and some of them don't have clear cut answers so that as you leave the theater, you and your friends have something to talk about so that the audience is, is able to interact with the movie rather than just being completely passive. I don't like movies that force the audience in a, into a totally passive role. So the scene with the mm-hmm. Russian was meant to engage the audience, get them thinking and, and send the movie into a deeper layer about the war in general and about, again, how, how we interact geopolitically, I guess. So there's, there's, there's the surface layer, which I think is totally enjoyable. This, this superstitious right that he's doing. And then there's this under layer that has like a background radiation of, of world war two, um, in general. So, um, Mm -hmm. that was the theory behind it. Yeah. And I like a movie too, that makes you think, and also at the same time, doesn't, uh, tell you what to think. It leaves, you know, the whole movie itself, I think, leaves it up to you to uh, figure out how what, what you think it means. And uh, I like that about the film or any film in well, general that does I that. I think audiences today are, are you know, and, and individual people watching movies, they're, 
they're hyper intelligent. They, they watch a lot of television. They can track a long story with lots of tiny little details. So I trust the audience to pepper in these little details and then to also kind of let them be a writer in the movie where I leave just enough open for their interpretation so that they can feel like they own a piece of the movie because they have their own rock solid opinion of what this means. And I think that I've talked to um, people who are filling in the blanks and their theories are every bit as interesting as any that I could have just outright brought to the movie and said, clearly, this is what this means. And I think mm-hmm. that that's when film becomes special is when there's an interaction happening and the, and the filmmaker gets out of the way. I mean, even in this interview, I'm answering as, as many of these questions as I possibly can, but I'm trying not to answer them so much that sure. it takes the joy out of uh, discovering uh, a new movie. So um, that's the balance, even as, as I was making it, was to try to leave room so that the audience becomes kind of a, 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 a secondary screenwriter on the movie where there's just enough room for them to, to uh, go have an interesting conversation with their friends or their father or uh, whoever they watch this movie with and, and there's enough for them to uh, have an exchange about this outside of the movie and outside of me as the person that wrote it and directed it. I feel like <clears throat> at this point, my job is to with, withdraw and let people take ownership of the movie. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. I think that when a filmmaker finishes a film, it doesn't belong to them anymore. It belongs to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, a real uh, it's an odd thing not necessarily about the movie but uh when i was in london um i was with my friend jason and we had a long commute because i didn't realize that woolwich was so far away from london but anyway <laughs> so we're on the, the 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 tube and uh this was after we saw the movie a couple days after and there was uh, a group of people that were headed to the carnival and uh, the one guy was uh, very inebriated and was dancing around the uh, the the uh the train, and he t- took out this big giant bottle of uh, Russian vodka out of his backpack, <laughs> and I was like, "That's that's." That. I was like, "That's a good guy." It's actually potato vodka, and then he started giving me shots and sharing shots, and I thought, and then I thought, "How weird is that?" Because you know, it made me think of the movie and the scene with uh, with the Russian sharing drinks with a Russian, and I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like you see in the movie it was like this weird little prophetic moment for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, what was the, um, what has the, the reception been for the movie uh, at Fright Fest itself? And uh, have you played it at other uh, festivals? Yeah, we, we played it Fantasia to uh, uh, 800 some odd people. Um, and they were just, just like a, a jubilant crowd cheering back at Sam in all of his heroic moments and just generally, you know, it felt like you were watching star Wars or something. I mean, the, the audience was just so excited and having so much fun. And before the screening even happened, there were lines around the block and every festival we've gone to the movie keeps selling out, which is a total shock to me because the movie is a slow burn and it's, and it's, it's essentially a drama. So uh, and, and people come see the movie and there's a very audible reaction all through the movie. Uh, we saw it with 2000 people in El Paso, Texas. Um, and that was incredible because the audience was just so into it and they were tracking all of the humor and all of the emotion in it. And I met people that were visibly moved after the movie, which is not something you conceptualize when you're writing it. I mean, when you're writing this stuff, you, there's a big part of you that, 
think that may never even come to pass. And then over the last two years, piece by piece, this movie came together, surprising me at every turn. And, and I, I don't know what, how I can explain it, but being naive or having never done this before, I forgot that there would be a stage where you're sitting at a festival or whatever, watching it with tons of people. And that was just such a surreal experience to have this thing that is very much kind of a dream to me come out of my head and then suddenly there's there's light on a screen projecting it and Sam Elliott standing right next to you and there's an audience sitting right next to you and there's an audience cheering it on that's really really something and then in England um it was you know very very similar reaction uh they actually sat us in the press box with all of the English uh critics and I could hear the reactions which at first that you know very nerve-wracking experience because you're sitting with the people that are essentially going to be judging the work. Um, and I was sitting next to Aiden and Caitlin and, and I was sitting with my wife and the composer, Joe Kramer. And there was just a lot of joy up there. A lot of, a lot of people, I think, experiencing something happily and, and enjoying the jokes and the sense of humor that the movie has. And then I met some of them after the screening. And then certainly the next day, a lot of them wanted to talk about the film and, uh, they were they were moved by it and that is again um one of the things that you don't you don't you know you hope for as you're writing it but i guess i'd forgotten that 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 stage would come to pass so my answer is it's been great and really surreal mm -hmm. and uh, so where does it go from here you know uh, once it does uh, the festival runs uh so we're in negotiations right now with a distributor that I'm excited about. And um, there seems to be uh, a, a, a good, basically there's good news on the horizon. I, I'm, I'm kind of, they kind of asked me not to comment on it too much right now. And I really wish sure. I could, but I can just tell people that I think they're going to get an opportunity to see it. And if you do get a chance to see it on a big screen, you know, uh, take your grandfather or your dad or your mom or somebody that, Mm -hmm. um, you, you look up to and go see this with them. I think that you'll have a, a, a good time. And I think that you'll have a lot to talk about when it's over. Um, you know, I, I made this film in a lot of ways for my grandfather who passed away uh, just three months before we started shooting. Uh, he was a CB in World War II and one of the most decent people I knew, just a very happy person. He was always accentuating the positive and, um, you know, I would have liked for him to be able to see this, but also there was, you know that people making movies and 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 all that that's not what would have made him proud he he would have just had to have been proud of me for who i am and i think um you know i think that he was and i think that means more to me than than getting to show him the movie so um and i know that he's mm -hmm. just proud of his entire family at large and and he always he was always looking for he was never impressed with what people had just who they were and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, you know, in this, this new and strange phase that I'm, that I'm in where I'm doing interviews and talking to people about a film. Um, like I was saying earlier, there's just a lot of people that, that are making, making it so that we have the freedoms that we have to, to, to do and share these things. And I, I think I'm more grateful of that than ever. So uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, how about uh, the other family have they seen the movie uh, the rest of my family yeah uh, yeah no yeah 
when we went to Montreal, a bunch of my close family got to go up and, and see that. And, uh, and then my, my filmmaking family, um, who I, you know, many of them I've been close to for, for 15 years or so, they've all gotten to see it, uh, for the most part with an audience. And, and I, I know they're really, you know, a lot of my family worked on the movie in different departments. Um, and I know that they're, they're, they're proud of the film and, and, and of the team at large. So, um, it's been, a, it's been a great experience. Mm-hmm. I, I won't, I won't. And I saw it. Lucky, I saw Lucky McGee's one of the producers and, uh, you worked with, uh, Lucky before on, a on the woman. Uh, how do you know him? Uh, Lucky, when, when the woman was initially going to shoot, I believe in Michigan, the tax credit fell through for one reason or another, and it ended up coming to Massachusetts and they needed a producer on the ground that could very quickly set up a lot of elements, including housing for the crew, every location for the movie, um, a lot of logistic work, vehicles, just, just pretty much everything that you could possibly need to set up a film in a very short period of time. And so I got the phone call because I had been working in film and um, I said, sure, I'll, I, you know, I, I respect and, and like Lucky McKee's movies, uh, obviously a very talented filmmaker and somebody that I'd be happy to, to kind of drop everything and get to work for right away. I was, uh, oh boy, I can't remember how I was, I must've been 34. I mean, I'm sorry, 24, uh, at the time, something like that. And so it was my first job as a producer. Lucky came to town. Uh, we became fast friends. Uh, the other producer on the movie asked if Lucky could stay, you know, I had a, I lived in, I rented an old big old farmhouse here in Massachusetts. So I had several extra bedrooms and he said, would you mind if Lucky and his dad, you know, stayed with you this summer? And he said, no problem. And my wife and I just became close friends with them. And Lucky and I have been working together ever since. Very cool. Some of the uh, Bigfoot stuff. uh, Was there any, like how physically demanding was that for Sam Elliott? Uh, there was, there were, uh, uh, Jared Burke had a stunt team there. There was a double for Sam for, you know, like the big throw into a rock. Um, but for the most part, Sam really wanted to do as much of his stunt work as possible. So there was usually if it was a big stunt, we'd have the stunt man do it as well. And then a lot of times when we were going through the footage, Sam's, uh, Sam's actual take of that ended up being the most real just because of his his age and his top body body type and his body language, um, Sam sold a lot of that physicality so well that we ended up using a lot of it. So uh, Sam was doing, you know, every stunt that you see, Sam Sam tried, I'd say, at least three-fourths of them, and we, went, we wound up using most of Sam's takes when he did it himself. So he was throwing himself into it. I mean, he was dangling off the edge of cliffs. He was, he was climbing the edge of cliffs. He was, he was doing... Everything that you see in that movie, um, Sam is doing that stuff. I mean, he, he was in, in better shape than most of us. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible yeah. thing. Uh, and uh, you mentioned about, you know, watching a movie with your grandfather or your mother and stuff. It is a movie that when I watch, I thought right away, like, I, uh, I'd like my mom to see this movie because I think she'd love it. She's a big fan of Sam Elliott, but I think she'd also really dig the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope she likes it when she sees it. And yeah, and Sam, Sam is is doing that thing that we all love from Sam in this movie, and he's also bringing a whole other level that I've never I've never seen from Sam before in this movie. So, 
Um, I think there's, there's, there's all of that, that lovely humanity and all that goodness and all that charm that Sam has. And then there's this, there's this underlayer of extreme intensity that, I, that that's almost scary in a couple scenes. I mean, I was sitting on set and Sam was so stern and so serious in a couple of those speeches and in a couple of those emotional moments that it just took the, it took the air right out of the room. Nobody, nobody moved. Mm-hmm. So this is your first, uh, first feature. What, what's your background in, in making movies? Like how did you get involved in producing? Uh, it's a, a, a long story, but the shortest version of it is that I did a comic while I was uh, studying journalism at UMass called Elsie Hooper. Um, and that was, you know, several days a week, the comic was, was going into the UMass Daily Collegian. There were 30,000 kids reading it. Um, I ended up creating a, a website for it, and it kind of gained a cult following on the Internet. And... Uh, some people in Hollywood had interest in making a movie of it. And, and that ended up getting pursued while I was working at a couple of newspapers and I started screenwriting and each year that went by, uh, even though that film wasn't getting made, there was an active effort to get it made. So I was meeting people and I was, you know, finding new relationships and I started doing script doctor work where I was uh, working on other people's screenplays um, and I was always writing all the time. And so it, it just slowly but surely as I was doing this comic, I wound up kind of uh, accidentally coming into a career in film. Um, I mean, when I was five years old, I knew I wanted to make films. It was, you know, I seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark and then a few years later seeing uh, Mate One, the John Sayles movie. Um, those two movies really told me at my core I wanted to make films but living in Massachusetts so far from LA I just didn't think there was any hope that I could get into film and so I I tried to do what I I felt was kind of the next best thing for me which was I love to write so I would I would you know uh, work in journalism and 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 go be a reporter so um, I got kind of pulled into a career in film by surprise Mm -hmm. and then I I wound up doing a short film I wound up doing a short film of, of Elsie Hooper, um, which is black and white and utilizes full-size puppets and a whole team of puppeteers hidden beneath the frame and um, Douglas Trumbull and John Sales. And, you know, John, John produced that, but Doug Trumbull saw that and then he wound up becoming a producer on the film and, and bringing on the visual effects team. So um, it's just one of those things you can't, you can't really predict. It was just, just kind of, piece by piece walked into that career. Mm-hmm. Is that a, is that any, can people find that anywhere? The Elsie Hooper short? Uh, you know, we had, we had made it and, and it was utilized as a tool to get this film made. It was kind mm-hmm. of a proof of concept for me as a director to, to convince people that I wouldn't squander their, their money. Right. Um, so it's not, <clears throat> it's not available on the internet right now, but I really should put it up. There's no reason that it's not, that it's not out there. So, uh, I guess keep your eyes peeled and I'll, I'll put it up sometime very soon. There's, there's no, I mean, at this point it's, it's certainly done its job. I think the only reason I haven't put it out there is I don't want to answer a million questions about why I'm not making that movie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) because if once once it's out there, people are just going to go, why isn't this your next project? Because it's so much fun and it's, it's, so unique and it's it's something that you 
I think people haven't quite seen before. And, and obviously I love working with puppets and I, I love working with actors um, specifically that are able to puppeteer. It's just so much fun. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just, it's not what I want. It's not what I want to do right away. So I think if I put mm-hmm. that out there, it just signals to people that that must be the next thing that I'm going to do. And, and I, and, and people are really passionate about that comic. And whenever that comic kind of, is updating people expect me to be working on that movie. And, and I think I'll be ready to do that when I'm just ready to kind of just have a blast for a summer. And I'm not sure that that's the project I, I, I want to tackle right away. Yeah. I often wonder that about uh, shorts, like, cause I'll see them at, you know, the festivals and I always wonder what happens to them after that. Cause uh, like, you can't like put out like a six minute movie, like on a DVD or something. I always wonder what happens to them if they just kind of uh, disappear. Or I guess some people put them up on YouTube and, and whatnot, but a lot of them just seem to, to run through the festivals and then uh, you never see them again. Yeah. And, and we never even, you know, ours never even went to festivals. It was just simply made mm-hmm. to kind of create a proof of concept for LC Hooper. And as a, as a, a way of, of showcasing that I, that I could do what, what we were saying I could do in, in making this film. And it uses a lot of the effects techniques that we used in Hitler and Bigfoot. I mean, Elsie Hooper is black and white, but it uses a lot of old school trickery and, and Hitler and Bigfoot uses a lot of uh, old school visual effects trickery as well. So um, you know, again, it was it was kind of a proof of concept for both projects. Though Elsie Hooper couldn't couldn't look any it couldn't look more different from what Hitler and Bigfoot is. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I have to say, I love the uh, the poster art for uh, the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot, uh, especially the uh, the swastika with the uh, with the Bigfoot uh, print down at the bottom. Uh, how did that come about? Did, did you have any uh, ha- any uh, input on the poster? Yeah, I worked intimately with uh, Johnny Tabor. He's a, a brilliant poster artist and filmmaker. Um, I was introduced to him by Patrick Ewald at Epic Pictures, who had worked with Johnny before. And Johnny and I just had a, a lot of similar loves in the movie poster world and wanted to do something really special here. We weren't going to release a trailer. We wanted the first audiences for this movie to get to experience it totally fresh and and untainted. So we, Mm -hmm. the only herald for this movie was ever going to be the movie poster. So we had to swing for the fences. So Johnny and I had a lot of conversations about uh, how that would look and how that would feel and the spirit of it and, and how it would be interpreted. And, um, it was really, really fun to work on that. And both of, of us are illustrators and so we were able to sketch ideas and and shoot things back and forth pretty rapidly um and ultimately johnny's just a really really talented artist and he's great at 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 lining up an image so that it it really catches your eye in a certain way and Mm -hmm. it was some of the most fun i had making the movie was working on the poster and the director doesn't usually get to work on the posters so that was really cool that epic let me be a part of that yeah yeah. It's funny because when I announced that you were coming on uh, on Facebook, uh, a couple, uh, one person maybe, maybe a couple people, they said that they didn't think it was a real movie. They thought it was just like uh, a poster that someone put out, you know, and just like a fake poster. Because part of it was there is no trailer, which I thought was very, right. was very funny. Uh-huh. And I agree yep. about that. Like it, it's hard to do, but if you could go into a movie without even seeing a trailer, really knowing what it's about. Uh, I find you really enjoy the movie more. 
Yeah, that's that's my favorite way to experience a movie. Nowadays, when I when I know I want to see a movie, I just don't watch the trailer. I, I just go see the movie because that's really, I mean, almost universally, the filmmaker doesn't intend for you to see a single image of the movie before you walk in. And there's a lot of surprise and a lot of intention going into the construction of the movie that a trailer can deflate. So obviously there's going to be a trailer at some point, but for the really passionate first people that wanted to see the movie and made the effort to go to a festival to see it, we wanted to give them that experience because this movie is a small independent film and we can kind of control the perception of the movie at this stage and, and the rollout of it. And so we thought, what a cool opportunity to withhold um, a trailer and, and, and give, again, it's a, it's a respect thing to audiences. I'm trying to give them the exact same experience I hope for from a movie. And so I hope that the people that have seen that haven't felt, again, tricked by discovering a different movie than what they expected, because if we had released a trailer, it would have set everybody's expectations right in line. But part of the mm-hmm. fun of this, I think, is the discovery of it. So I hope that um, audiences feel like that was a sign of respect to them, because that's, that's certainly the reason we did it. Yeah. And uh, like you said, if you get a chance to see it at a festival uh, or if it, you know, later on is playing at an art house theater, whatever it is, uh, there's nothing uh, the same as watching a movie on the big screen. Yeah. And, th- and this movie was shot in CinemaScope and it had a, a, a beautiful uh, team of people came together for the visual science on the, the image itself. Um, uh, Alex Venler, the cinematographer, spent some time creating an algorithm for the look of both 1942 and 1987. Um, Steve Edlin consulted on this film, and he just shot uh, Star Wars Episode Eight. Uh, Aiden Stanford, who was one of the restorationists on uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, color-corrected the film. Um, and Douglas Trumbull and Richard Yurisich contributed and supervised the visual effects for the movie. So there's a rich visual background on this movie um, that I think is unique and it's worth trying to see it in a theater. It'll be, it'll be just fine. If you watch it at home, it'll look great. It'll sound great. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew Smedic, our sound designer did a really great classic, classic sound design that reminds me of Ben Burt and old Spielberg movies. And then we had the extreme good fortune to have um, Skywalker found uh, accept this movie um, one of the lowest budget movies they've ever done. And we got to go to Skywalker Ranch and mix the sound for the movie. So it's, wow. it's just a really rich theatrical experience. If you can go see this, it's, it's very atypical for an independent film to have a team like this um, behind the scenes, creating the uh, image and the sound. So if you can get that experience, I really think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Now, since it isn't like a really a horror movie, uh, was it difficult at all getting it at like Fright Fest and, and other like genre based uh, festivals? No, I mean they they invited us. I don't I don't even think we submitted. I, oh, I wow. Fright Fest saw the film uh, at market at Cannes or Con. I'm sorry, I'm, I, I'm <laughs> terrible at pronouncing that. Um, sure. But they saw it there. Uh, I think um, Alan Jones specifically. Um, uh, I, I think. Um, Paul at Fright Fest may have also seen it there, but they, they invited the film um, having seen it there and, and taking, I think a big risk. There's, there's certainly something very uh, courageous about a festival known for, for um, horror films and for um, 
providing, you know, really wild thrills to bring such a low key character study. Um, but I also think, again, talking about respecting your audience, that's them saying to their audience that we, we respect you and we think that you'll enjoy movies that come from uh, all sorts of fantastic backgrounds and that, and that mm-hmm. you, that you, you might enjoy a movie like this. So I, I, when we got the invitation, I just thought it was a really cool um, thing for them to, to think of us and to want us there. And so it, it was, it's almost experimental in nature that we brought this movie there. Mm-hmm. So uh, how can you, how can you follow the movie online or yourself? Do you have a uh, social media sites? Or... I, I personally don't have any social media. I know there's a Twitter that somebody at Epic must be running for the man who killed Hitler. And then the Bigfoot, um, mm-hmm. you can read my comic at lchooper.com if you want to read it. Um, oh, and yeah, beyond that, I mean, just, just do a Twitter search of Hitler Bigfoot and there's constantly people <laughs> updating yeah. each other about it and talking about it. And then Aiden Turner has the most dedicated, amazing, um, numerous fan groups and they are some of the biggest supporters of this film. And they're so, they just, they just love and support Aiden. And so they sometimes know news before I do. So that's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, when you when you said about Google, it did kind of make me laugh because I was thinking, well, yeah, you, if you're gonna Google the man who killed Hitler and then the Bigfoot, there's probably not going to be like uh, uh, too many other things that pop up that aren't related. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that group of words has ever been used together in history, so you'll <laughs> find it really easily on Google. Exactly. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. It was uh, great to talk to you, and I absolutely love the movie. Not just because you're here, I, I, I thought it was fantastic. Thank you, Neil. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Oh, my God.